0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 31st, 2023. We're almost in June, and um, in June, I'm actually going to an event uh, the Braver Angels National Convention, an attempt to get Americans to start talking to one another again, to get below, to get beyond what some people describe as their tribalism. Um, the Better Angels National Convention next month is being held in Gettysburg, an appropriate venue. And I became familiar. I've become familiar with the braver angels through a conversation i had on the show last year with a woman called monica guzman one of the leading figures in braver angels about having curious conversations in dangerously divided times monica wants us to talk outside our tribe to get beyond the echo chambers of contemporary life particularly uh, online life. Much of this is, of course, associated with the idea that tribes are bad, that they limited us, that they make us parochial and untrustworthy of others. But my guest today on the show, David R. Sampson, who's an evolutionary anthropologist at uh, Toronto University, I think has a different view of tribalism. He has a new book out, Our Tribal Future, in which he suggests that we can't live without it. And Tribes might not be quite as bad as some people suggest. As I said, David is joining us from Toronto. So, David, is that fair? Has tribe, tribes and tribalism has it had a rather bad press over the last few years? And are you suggesting that uh, our tribal future might not be quite as
1: dire or as dark as some people argue? Well, that is absolutely the million-dollar question, Andrew. And thank you for having me on the show, by the way. Um, For us to get a really good understanding, uh, to be able to even approach the capacity to understand the answer to this question, I think it it is worthwhile to take a step back and think about the natural history of how this all came about because the scope and scale of the question is so tremendous. One way I think we can do this is grounding it in a a metaphor. Uh, The analogy I'd like to use here is that of a movie. We'll call it the human movie. And let's say the movie begins at the advent of our genus 1.8 million years ago. And it's a 100 minute movie, like your average movie. And the last milliseconds of that movie are us having this conversation here today. So this is just going to help us figure out the timeline in a way that we can comprehend as the limited homo sapiens that we are. And so in the very first minute of this movie, we see Something quite radical happened with respect to our Australopithecine ancestors, those ape slash chimp like human things that we evolved from. And as we emerged from the trees and we started living in camps, so this was a camp level social structure for this occurred for essentially 99 and a half minutes of the movie. And this structure was very similar and it's still similar in the very few hunter-gatherers and small-scale societies that exhibit it today. You had a group of, say, 20 to 30 adults working together face-to-face, peer-to-peer in the project of survival. And the rest of the movie from this point is actually kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, it's kind of boring. You would need a David Attenborough to be able to spice it up a little bit because it would feel much like a documentary until the final minute of the movie, in which case, it would take a radical departure and turn all of a sudden from a documentary into a almost science fiction in terms of its pace and scale. So, at one minute left in the film, you have us out competing one of the last hominin species on the planet, the Neanderthals. So they go extinct uh, for reasons of, of varying complexity. Uh, we could have outbreeded them, or we could have outcompeted them for resources. But we become the sole inheritors of hominin evolution on the planet. And then with 30 seconds left, we see the sparking of civilization, which humans begin living sedentary lifestyles. And in this, in this case, it's, it's really fascinating because one of the innovations we do here is we start domesticating plants and animals, basically making them our slaves. And for lack of a better term, we basically turn them into a refrigerator where we can grab calories anytime we want. And then with this 15 seconds left in the movie, we invent writing because we're starting to live in these really dense populations. And so we invent writing, which means we can bootstrap cultural evolution to a rapid extent because we can store data beyond our lifetime. And then with 10 seconds left, we invent moralizing gods. And as I hope we'll discuss today, one of the most powerful tribal signals or a signal of coalitionary alliance is that of ideological signals, uh, religious so this signals. this was the thing uh,
0: that... Um braver angels are trying to overcome you present right you present all this as a movie david and the movie of course that comes mm-hmm. to mind on tribes and tribalism is the godfather one of my favorite mm. films i've often talked about it uh we all remember or i hope we all remember i hope we've all seen godfather one the classic. Uh, the beginning of the book which is really uh the beginning of the movie which is uh, a movie about tribalism of one kind or another in which Marlon Brando is sitting at a desk and people come and talk to him uh, and they want to touch him, they want to trust him. Mm. Uh, is uh, the beginning of The Godfather essentially the first 99 and a half minutes of, of your other movie?
1: Ah, uh, it, it, I see where you're going with that, but actually, something a little bit more sophisticated is going on here. I see like the acquiescent to the dominant alpha chimp, right? Um, This being like a a callback to our early human evolution and early Australopithecine evolution. But something interesting is going on here. There is more of a signaling of coalitionary alliance, which now might be a really great time to define what a tribe is and what tribalism is. So a tribe is an intersubjective belief network that signals coalitionary alliance to bootstrap cooperation amongst strangers. And so within this network. We have two competing moral senses. This is the idea that, in fact, when we when we're communicating and projecting our signals to the outside world, that we belong to this particular identity, it allows others of those in our environment that see that signal and interpret it as authentic to say, ah, I can cooperate with this person. So in fact, tribalism was originally evolved to bootstrap cooperation amongst strangers in our uh, and what we uh, 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 And
0: also, uh, and I assume that for you, tribalism is, is, is a plastic notion. It evolves like mm. human beings themselves. We did a show when this was um, a TechCrunch show 10 years ago. I did a show with Seth Godin, um, mm-hmm. one of the great influencers of Silicon Valley and um, futurism. He had a new book out, Tribes, We Need You to Lead Us. Um, and Godin was on the show suggesting that uh, there was a new kind of tribalism. I think for Godin, uh, we self-organize into tribes, whether they're the physical tribes of of living in agricultural communities or the postmodern tribes of the digital age. Is there a difference between the kind of tribes that Godin imagines in the 21st century and the original tribes that you described at the beginning of this show?
1: Yeah. So the original, there are some definite, definite analogs to be made. The original tribes were trying to figure out a way to get beyond the scaling of trust. And so this is really an, a trust instinct. It's a way to figure out how to say in a complex environment with people that transcend Dunbar's number. And Dunbar's number, uh, of course, is what, uh, 150 individuals is the what the, we call the channel capacity of the human brain to be able to compute and recall a ledger of record of interaction between. But the
0: Dunbar number, out, um, yeah. David, is about yep. friendship, isn't it? Rather than trust. So, I mean, you can yes. Yeah, so you you can trust people who aren't your friends.
1: That's so. Friendship is that face to face. That's below the Dunbar number, right? So the face to face peer networks that we have, that is really we should be working really hard to cultivate those. And I think one of the main messages of this book is it's it's a little bit dangerous. It's almost an illusion to think that our tribes are our families and our friends. They're not. They are these abstract coalitionary alliances that, in fact, could lead us astray. So one of the main pitches in the book here is to double down actually on the face-to-face networks that we have, the sub-tribal relationships to enhance human wellness and human well-being because we're in a state of pretty bad evolutionary mismatch right now where people are isolated and particularly after COVID-19, um, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, the Surgeon General just released a, an announcement with respect to um, isolation being one of the, the major causes of lack of health and wellness in the United States. So really, in a way, the main message is that these tribes that I'm talking about and that we're talking about are actually illusions made to bootstrap cooperation among strangers, but we should really be doubling down and focusing on our communities.
0: Your book, uh, you, you're, you're very helpful for the interview. You have a one-sentence summary of your book, um, and I'm quoting you here. The key to uncovering the mystery at the center of our tri- tribal future is the resolution to the trust paradox, which is the ultimate moral question to understand how a human mind that was crafted to work with people we know evolved the instinct to work with people we don't. Uh, David, we've been trying to work this one out for a few hundred years. I mean, nationalism (laughs) was an attempt through a shared language. Where are we now? Why are we so ambivalent about tribalism? Why do we both embrace it? and push it away? Why is it something that many of us believe we can't either live with or without?
1: Well, the argument here is that this coalition cognition is something that is more along the lines of an instinct. And here's why I'm somewhat hopeful, is that because science has uncovered one of the most powerful ways in which a human being, an individual, an individual and at the group level, how we can kind of fight an instinct that we might think is um, leading us to a, a an end that will reduce wellness. And that's to elevate the awareness of the instinct into our attention. And so it's conversations like you and I are having right now, talking about how powerful a force that can have, this can have on an individual and on a group level. This is the key to us getting a greater understanding of how to fight maybe perhaps the more, uh, it, difficult battles like the rampant partisanship and the political tribalism that we have today. Um, and I do talk in the book about some of the diagnostics, self-diagnostics we can do to help elevate to our attention how bad our own inner tribalism is. But, but, could... mo-
0: but most people, um, David, are happy with their tribalism. They know who they like. They, don't, they know who they don't like. They're comfortable with that. The media, the world reflects that. The cities they live in, the technologies they use are kind of mirrors for that. W- why should people be incentivized to embrace what you call our tribal future, which, in an odd way, is anything but traditionally tribal?
1: Yeah, I think. Well, the I think that in, the fate of the species here is in, hanging in the balance. Um, I well, think that's that a bit that, vague. Um, uh,
0: I mean would
1: say I, I would say that in the twenty first century, unless we come to a very clear understanding of the the drives that are pushing groups into conflict, then we lower, probabilistically lower our chance to survive as a species.
0: But David, you, you are, you're an, an evolutionary anthropologist. You have the meta view of human history. You mm-hmm. began this conversation talking about the 100-minute um, movie about the human condition, and we're in the last five seconds. I mean, throughout human history, we've been at, been at each other's throats. It's been defined by violence. What's different about it today? Apart from perhaps us having technologies which can literally wipe each other out.
1: Yeah, well, on the other hand, so there have been multiple solutions that evolution has procured for us scaling trust. And so the very first solution that evolution invented was kin selection. This is a billion-year-old innovation where organisms would channel their energy into other organisms that shared their DNA. And that was the common way we cooperated for quite some time until the evolution of friendship. And friendship is about a 25 million year old evolutionary innovation. And there's about a dozen or so species that really have the meaty brains required for the ledger of record to be able to cooperate at scale. And then 300,000 years ago, there was a completely new innovation, uh, by Homo sapiens at the advent of our species 300,000 years ago, which tried to figure out a way to scale trust amongst strangers. And that is tribalism. That is projecting our coalitionary alliance out there so that we can get and surpass Dunbar's number, limitation of our cognitive capacity in our brains so that we could cooperate at scale. And now we are on the precipice of different types of social organizations and technologies and the internet and all these things that can allow us to experiment with novel solutions to the trust problem, which we have always organisms have been trying to solve for a billion years. So, given the fact that we already have figured out one, I think it's just hopefully a matter of time before we we uh, figure out another.
0: We've got a number of writers on tribes and tribalism on the show. Another Sebastian Junger, oh. uh, his book "Tribe" on homecoming and belonging was a huge loved that book. Yeah, Um, he was on the show talking about freedom versus community Mm -hmm. I think Junger would suggest I don't want to put words into his mouth he's a smart enough man not to need me to do that Um, but Junger would have suggested that there is this uh, this 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 parallel world of individual freedom and community Mm -hmm. and that's how most liberals think about this stuff is that individualism relies on distancing ourselves from community and indeed from from tribes themselves. You're obviously an evolutionary anthropologist, so you seem to think of everything in evolutionary terms. How would you explain, or how would evolution explain,
1: liberalism and liberal society and individualism? Well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Junger's work, Um, I'm particularly a fan of his angles on how truly humans gain a sense of authenticity and meaning and purpose when they embrace the responsibilities of a community and that the unit of change is actually on the community level. And so one way to answer your question is that I'm optimistic in terms of those societies that allow that unit of change. The autonomy of the unit of change to be on the level of the community where people can group together and where they're real stakeholders in their local environment i get more and more skeptical as we scale up i get more and more skeptical of our our capacity to, because of that limitation to our our don't well, give
0: some examples of these sorts of societies?
1: yeah um yeah so one really good in terms of the the community being the level of change Uh, There was one study by Raj Shetty that showed that in Compton and Watts, so these are controlling, these are really um, uh, challenging environments to grow up in. And in Compton, it was 44% likelihood of individuals become particularly males becoming incarcerated. And in Watts only 4%, despite there being other variables that were very much overlap. And the primary the primary factor that was identified as being predictive here was the level of community engagement that they had. And so really doubling down on the primordial uh, formula that we had for 99 and a half minutes of the movie, I think is an important thing to keep in mind because with half a second left in the, in the human movie that I was talking about, we see a rapid departure From this, In fact, it was uh, Levitt and Levittown in the 1950s that kind of conspired with a team of sociologists in FDR that were worried about males coming back from the war and congregating together and becoming communists. So they one of the things that they were trying to do was to create a D community community and they succeeded. They created the suburbs, in which case the family unit became the nuclear family and it was no longer the nuclear camp. And so I think one of the ways and I think this is really to Junger's point is to embed ourselves and th- to think of ourselves as being intentionally proximal to our community and doubling down on that strategy. You still, and I think you that haven't, will go you, a long you, way you, to you, it.
0: You, you haven't explained my my question yeah. on, on, on liberalism and individualism. Mm-hmm. How does an evolutionary anthropologist like yourself explain mm-hmm. that? Our longing mm-hmm. to be separate from community, our longing to be
1: authentic as ourselves. Yeah, uh, so... When you look at the social blueprint, this is Nicholas Christakis who talked about the social blueprint. So you have autonomy is definitely one of the core components to a life well-lived. And so is love. And so is a social network. And so is friendship. All these things need to be in balance for you to have a healthy system. And so I don't think there's a necessary conflict between them. Well, what about...
0: Libertarians, and there's a strong strain of libertarianism in America, which believes that the the real unit of 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 quote unquote social life is the self. How would a again an anthropologist explain that?
1: Well, oh, that's interesting because the libertarians yeah, are I know.
0: making mistakes. Yeah, I mean, the... you seem to be you, you're, you're cherry picking history. You're finding examples that mm-hmm. you like, but ignoring a lot of other stuff. I'm curious also as sort of the reappearance, our obsession with tribalism in, in, in the 21st century. We've got later in this week uh, an Australian, uh, Alec Rivchin on the show. He has a new book out, The Seven Deadly Myths, and it's a book about the what he believes at least is the reappearance in a virulent way of antisemitism. And it occurred to me that on the one hand, We seem obsessed with identity and racism and people against the Jews and the blacks and women and whites and blah, blah, blah. Uh, But on the other hand, we also live in an age where um, tribalism is frowned on. And of course, the Jews in many ways were the original tribe or at least the chosen people. How how would you make sense in, in today's age of our obsession with identity?
1: Yeah, well, again, this goes to the core of the adaptation. Um, this is the, the most important thing to think about here is identity protective cognition. Identity protective cognition is the bias to basically bend your interpretation of the world around you to conform to the, uh, the understandings and the beliefs of your group. And this is one of the strongest biases that we have. And so um, in a lot of ways, the fact that this is happening at scale is not surprising at all. And again, I go back to the point that we need to elevate this all to our attention to be able to combat it.
0: Yeah, I I, I have to admit, I Mm -hmm. I don't entirely understand what you're suggesting. So, So to get so to both, let's end here, uh, David, um, this tribal future, map it out, what will it look like? Uh, and, and, and take some of the academic jargon out, explain mm. it in ways that ordinary people would understand. What is a world, uh, a healthy tribal future, what does it look like? How do we behave? And, and how do we, to, to borrow some language from you, scale trust?
1: Yeah, so I think the core thing to realize here is that we have our shared experience is fundamentally biological. Our want to fall in love and to give love, our want to have strong ties with our kith and kin, our want to avoid getting sick and the fear of death. This is all linked to the fact that we share a common ancestor going back 250,000 years ago, a shared mitochondrial Eve in East Africa and it's the shared experience that each individual, being born into the world as a Homo Sapien, has, and that it, it's the identities that we harbor are all ways by which fitness tried to uh, allow right us to on, survive. And y- y- again, yeah. you're
0: you're you're you're
1: abstracting this out mm-hmm. in, in
0: very unconvincing ways. Most of us fear death because we don't know what happens, and it seems to suggest the end of life itself. That doesn't have to go back to some um, ancient uh, ancestor.
1: Well, it's just the human biology is a reality is essentially what I'm, what I'm saying. And that our shared ancestry and our shared biology is one of the powerful factors that can bring us together. And a shared identity is a human species is one that can ultimately elevate and, become a meta-tribal so what does look like?
0: Okay, so yeah. enough with all the, the evolutionary language. What does mm-hmm. this look like in the 21st century? Is it the United Nations? Is it small communities? Is it rethinking the nation state?
1: Uh, I think that honestly, we're about to see a massive increase in decentralization and particularly in places that have a open societies. We're gonna see a massive decentralization and more and more tribes come onto the scene, uh, especially given that this is all tribalism. Give is me some examples. Give me, give me
0: some concrete examples of what that might look like.
1: Yeah, it's going to look like increasing uh, networks and increasing communities. Um, and particularly uh, if you put it in contrast to, say, someplace like in China or the East, where there's going to be much more top down regulation and much less Freedom to create our own identity groups by which we can build those communities. It'll The 21st century, I think, is going to really look like a battle between the monolithic tribes of the East and the hyper decentralized tribes of the West. And that
0: doesn't promise a very
1: healthy future, does it? suggesting a kind of anthropological cold war if we can vote for with our feet and we have the freedom to move to the groups that we want to identify with and that increase our health i think in the decentralized places of the world it's very hopeful because we'll be able to go through a uh, an arms race of the communities that can increase wellness the most So let's end where
0: we began with uh, Braver Angels, Monica Guzman's organization, which is meeting uh, in June uh, at Gettysburg. What should organizations like Braver Angels be trying to do to enable us to overcome the tribalism that seems to have each of us at each other's throats in the beginning of the 21st century?
1: Yeah, there are a couple diagnostics that we can run through that I think are really valuable and that uh, organizations that are worried about this question can really use to help elevate this, this particular uh, problem to our attention. So the first one is the idea of an identity stack. So each of us, if we were to list out, say, as many identities that we are proud to belong to on a piece of paper, you could look at which of those identities are beyond that 150 threshold, that that tribal threshold, um, and which ones are below it. And what we want to rebalance here is the number of groups that we associate with, that we're proud to belong to, that are um, more face-to-face and more peer in terms of their networking. So if your primary identities are that that of a political party and not of, like, say, the local community or the local church that you have, that might need some reweighting. So that's the identity stack exercise. Then another one is the contempt test or dehumanization scale. So you can think of the out group. think of a political enemy. And if you actually have a, a, a disgust response, like, oh, that's just gross. That's literally your insular cortex and your amygdala lighting up. They're saying uh, you're literally feeling the disgust as though you were trying to get rid of a, a pathogen. And that's we definitely want to avoid that. That's going to lead to some pretty nasty outputs and then there's moral equivalency tests kind of like the mirror test where you can think of a rival political leader and think of them being going through some sort of claim that their taxes were misappropriated and then think of how that makes you feel and do the mirror of that where you think of your political leader going through the exact same claim and if there's any differences between the two, then likely you have some sort of coalitionary instinct response. And so, thinking about these things on the di- self diagnostic level, I think is a powerful way to elevate this, um, this bias to our attention so that we can gain control over it. And them.
0: finally, David, um, should we be thinking less of ourselves in tribal terms, particularly the ones we've talked about before, religious, ethnic, cultural, sexual?
1: Yeah, I think the, the way to go in the 21st century is doubling down on this concept of a meta-tribe where we are identifying as one species. And that's sort of the terminus tribe where the sacred value is thinking and believing that beliefs can change. And that way th- we can ward ourselves against the very worst parts hmm. of... I think
0: what you're really tribe. saying, David, is we need to become like Canada. Is that fair?
1: Ah, I I... Uh, I'll leave it up to the viewers to to figure the answer to that question.
0: Excellent, David. You're a star. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thank
1: you.